0: Hello everyone, welcome to the exciting third season of Random Trek Review, the podcast where we analyze, discuss, and review randomly selected Star Trek episodes. My name is Matt, and I'm joined by my good friend Andrew. And, uh, you know, with everything going on, I've noticed that morale is a bit low around here. So we're going to go on the offensive here and dig into a a pretty solid Deep Space Nine episode. Uh, Andrew, how does that sound to you?
1: I mean, it sounds great. Uh, Yeah, it's a great time to be a Star Trek fan, right? We are right in the midst of our big, you know, 20 some odd weeks of Star Trek. Random Trek Review is back on the air so yeah it's definitely an exciting time and uh, I think that uh, one of the things that I felt with last season was that uh, Deep Space Nine is kind of my jam it's the thing that I did the best on last year I think it's probably the series that I like the most and uh, yeah I'm just excited to be back talking about uh, everybody's favorite Bajoran or I guess in this case Cardassian space station.
0: All right, well, let's, uh, let's start off by going back to the end of our last uh, regular podcast and uh, tell me how I did with my recall of uh, A Time to Stand and give me a rating out of five damaged starships.
1: Yeah, so you did really well with this one. Of course, this is a season premiere, so it's always kind of sticks up in, in your mind, or at least I, I feel that way. You knew that this was kind of the true beginning to the Dominion War. You knew that they were going to send Cisco on a mission to blow up a Ketracel White facility. Uh, you said that Admiral Ross would make an appearance. You said that there would be a stolen Jem'Hadar ship. And that they would basically use it to try to get to the facility because the facility was going to be in Cardassian space. You say they would blow it up just in the nick of time and that the episode would end with the ship adrift. That's all true. 100%. That's really, really, really good. The only thing that you're kind of missing is... The Cardassians taking over the station. Um, I also think that you mentioned that Garrick was going to be in the episode. And of course, he does show up and ends up uh, flying the ship and everything. So I'm kind of right between four and five. And to be honest with you, a lot of the stuff that happens on the station is more just kind of filler. So I think that we're going to start off the season nice and hot. And I'm going to give you five out of five damaged starships. Um, You pretty much had this one bagged it's yeah it's a season premiere so uh and i think it's a pretty memorable one i think that this was kind of the episode that everybody was kind of waiting for right the the true start to the minion war and we'll obviously talk about it a bit more but if you haven't seen it matt why don't you give us a little recap as to what this episode entails
0: all right yeah so we're gonna be talking about a time to stand which is uh from deep space nine it's season six episode one it originally aired on September 29th, 1997. It guest stars Andrew Robinson as Garrick, uh, Jeffrey Coombs as Wayune, Mark Alemo as Ducat, Aaron Eisenberg as Nog, J.G. Hertzler as Martok, Casey Biggs as Damar, Barry Jenner as Admiral Ross, and Brock Peters as Joseph Sisko. It was written by Iris Stephen Baer and Hans Beimler, and it was directed by Alan Croker. And just in case you didn't get a chance to check it out, uh, I'll give you a very quick synopsis here. The war with the Dominion is not going well. Morale is low as the Federation and Klingons have suffered several defeats in the three months since hostilities began at the end of last season. Fortunately, Sisko and his crew are chosen to undertake a mission deep in Cardassian space to destroy a Ketracel White storage facility. On the station, the Cardassian and Dominion forces are settling in, much to the chagrin of Kira and Odo, who begin plotting to sabotage them when they get a chance. The Defiant crew set off on their mission in a captured Jem'Hadar attack ship. After a brief battle with the USS Centaur, they arrive at their target. They set the bomb, but the facility's security field stays up too long and the ship is caught in the blast. Dax's fine piloting skills get them out of there still intact, but the warp drive is fried. (laughs) Now, when i first saw this uh i watched this the first time during the original run as i'm sure you can imagine because around you know the later seasons of deep space nine i was right into it and i mean call to arms was the episode that came before this at the end of season five and like that was a pretty huge cliffhanger i mean the episode ends with this huge armada of ships like you know heading heading into battle right after they lost the station and and going through this was for the whole summer wondering what's going to happen was, was a pretty, uh, agonizing thing for me to go, uh, through. So it was pretty, this was a very anticipated episode for me during the original run when I, when I first saw it. So, um, that, I think that's part of the reason why it really sticks out to me. Um, is there anything that, that you remember from the first time you saw it?
1: Yeah. So I watched this one kind of during binge culture really, which, uh, is such a different way to experience TV shows just because you end up, I guess, like in a position where it's just so readily available to watch the next one. So my recollection of this episode was when I had watched called Arms, it was like I couldn't click the button fast enough to see how it resolved. The only downside to that is that this is kind of not really the end of it. And I had this inclination like I really wanted to see up to the point where they get the station back. So I literally binged all of these next few episodes. I think it's like maybe five or six episodes where the Cardassians have control of Deep Space Nine. And uh, I don't think I watched it all in one sitting. But I think over the course of two days, I probably watched this like little mini arc basically, um, to the point where they get the station back. And I guess, interestingly enough, I think the first episode after they get the station back, we looked at last season, which was Cordially Invited. Which, uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I watched that one. I think that I kind of like got to the point where they were back on the station, and I was like, okay, take a little breather, and then I'll come back and I'll watch Worf and Jet Z's wedding. But, yeah, man, it's, uh, it's, it's not easy, easy either way. Um, I think the anticipation is killer, but I also have that you know binge your life away and you know hole up in the basement watching star trek on continuum is not easy either but that's kind of the way that tv shows are now
0: yeah so you had almost the opposite uh, experience that i did
1: yeah i was like literally stuffing my face trying to get as much of it as possible (laughs) and you were starving and trying to wait out until the next episode game
0: now, what you talked about with the the sort of that six episode arc that you kind of watched all at once, that sort of segues nicely into the first little topic here. Now, this was the first move, like conscious move, to go to this kind of semi-serialization. Now, this is the first episode of an a ongoing story that that ends up being, as you said, six episodes long. And this was the first time that they'd really made a conscious decision to do it. And this was the longest one they had done. Now, prior to this, they'd done that three-part episode in Deep Space Nine with the Circle. And um, so it was kind of an ambitious thing that they were going to do. And it was something that they'd never really done before. Um, Now, do you think that this first episode, like, how do you feel like this is as, like, a setup for that six-episode arc?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's way ahead of its time, really, to, to kind of do these big arcs weren't really super popular. Um, I mean, this is the period of time in, in TV where, you know, characters would die, and the next episode, they pretend like nothing ever happened. Uh, cough, cough, Tasha Yar. But I think that in terms of this little section of six, it definitely just sinks its teeth into you. I think that it's really hard to watch this, and then not want to watch the very next episode. It's almost like a cliffhanger. And then after you fall off the cliff, it's like you land on a little shelf that's just like another cliffhanger. So that it just keeps happening. <laughs> and you want to see it. I think that there's also something that may be psychological, or at least I find it. Because I can't stand that the Cardassians have control of the station. And so there's like something within me that wants to see how are they going to get the station back. I know in my mind, it's a Star Trek show about Deep Space Nine called Deep Space Nine. They're going to get it back. Everybody knows they're going to get it back. But it's like, ah, I just need to wait until they get to that point where they're going to actually do it. And we're going to be back to status quo. We're going to be back to normal. Uh, Is that how you felt? Absolutely, yeah. Like it
0: it just ate at me that, you know... Gul Dukat's back in his office and wayoons you know cruising around the promenade and yeah it was definitely uh, not something that you want to see. Now another one interesting part of this arc is that it was originally supposed to encompass the entire Dominion War so like by the end of the sixth episode it was going to be completely over. Um, now hindsight being what it is I mean do you think that the way that they did it and drew it out to really two full seasons because I, I, I think it opened up the opportunity for them to tell a whole lot of stories that you can't really tell without being in a wartime situation so i mean do, do you think that that's probably a wise choice that they made
1: i think that they had teased it for too long to finish it in six episodes i think that i mean i want to say it's like season three where there are some aliens that they run into who who just mention it very casually And then, you know, as the seasons four and five go along, a little bit more gets discovered, a little bit more gets discovered. They're always talking about it, right? It's always in the background. It's always like this lingering shadow. So if they had built for so long only to wrap it up in six episodes, I think it would have been a huge disappointment. That being said, they still had a lot of fun one-off episodes in the last two seasons, but there always was that lingering kind of, you know, veil that they're under war times and again i mean deep space nine was the ultimate in doing things we'd never seen before and we had never really seen star trek or star trek officers under a period of war and so being able to see that really made it unique
0: yeah and we've kind of talked about that a little bit like when we did honor among thieves there i mean it it does kind of tie into the war but really that's something that they could have probably told as like a one-off episode but they did tie it in but yeah we've we've talked about how they did have a lot of good standalone episodes but but they would always kind of mention it in passing or, or in the background so yeah no i i think that drawing it out for a longer period of time and you make a good point that you know they built up the dominion for years before this actually you know the war actually fully broke out so yeah six episodes would definitely not be quite enough
1: I mean, I guess I could flip the question on its head and say, do you think that they maybe stretched it out too long? I mean, spoiler alert, this basically takes two seasons to eventually get ourselves to the end of the war. Um, And I think it ends on like a 10 or 6 or 10 episode kind of like final arc leading up until the series finale. Um, Do you think that they maybe like stretched it a little thin or do you think that it was just right? I'm certainly not dissatisfied
0: with what they did with it. Um, because they kept it interesting, it didn't get boring, and, and I think that they, you know, they certainly didn't run out of material, so I, 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 have no problem with them, you know, giving us two years of, of Dominion War.
1: Yeah, are you surprised that the network went for this? Because, I mean, Star Trek at this point was as hot as it's ever been, ever. And, you know, the network really kind of went out of its way here to do something really different when they had a golden goose. They didn't need to do this, right? It was successful enough as is. Do you think that, you know, are you surprised that they were allowed to do it?
0: Maybe a little bit, but Iris Stephen Bear was a pretty headstrong, pretty stubborn, you know, showrunner. And so I feel like if he really wanted to do it, it was just going to happen, whether they liked it or not. (laughs) So I I, I, I I guess I would be a little bit surprised, especially during that time. But knowing what we know now, you know, now that I've grown up, I don't know if it's really that surprising that it actually happened.
1: Right. Now, this is this is actually one of the few episodes that has a dedication at the start of the episode. Brandon Tartikoff, did you read up at all in terms of who that was or how that kind of uh, like came about? Well,
0: I was actually going to ask you if you knew who he was.
1: I did not. You know, I... I... I just kind of saw it and I never bothered to check on it or anything like that.
0: So I I recognized the name and I think I actually recognize it from Seinfeld because I think. So who he was a a network executive at NBC throughout the 80s and I think into the early 90s and um he was responsible for a lot of really good shows coming to NBC and he really turned the network around because they were not the really the powerhouse that they are now but he he you know was able to develop a ton of really good shows like seinfeld was one uh that stood out to me when i sort of looked at the list and saved by the bell was another one and those are two like beloved shows and those are like two of my favorite shows and he actually helped to develop deep space nine like he was actually the one who originally went to rick berman and suggested having a show set on a stationary setting
1: so this guy was a big deal then
0: yeah, and so he passed away, I think, just about a month before this episode aired. Oh, okay. All right, now, just getting into the episode itself. Now, we get a very long teaser here. It's just over seven minutes, which I think makes it one of the longest of all time. Uh, quick, One quick point that I just wanted to quickly throw out there is that we open with that big sort of flotilla or fleet of, of ships. And this was one of the last uh scenes that they used of of ships using the physical models and um because they wanted tons of ships the uh like the model building department or whatever they bought a whole bunch of like star trek model kits and did what's known as kit bashing which is when you take like pieces from one and and mash it with pieces from another and um i guess when it came time to like paint the names on them they're like yeah, no one's going to be able to see these on camera. And so they got very creative with the ship names. And apparently some of them were, like, not uh, G-rated, shall we say.
1: Oh, really? I wonder if yeah. maybe that's one of the reasons why they're, like, so hesitant to put Deep Space Nine into, uh, like, an HD format.
0: <laughs> 4K, yeah. You don't want to see, like, USS blank. <laughs> I thought that was kind of a fun little little piece there. I, there. I mean, I'm,
1: I kind of shed a tear over the last of the you know the physical models i think it looks great and i never would have guessed that uh they were just like your run-of-the-mill models that you'd buy at at a store or hobby shop so it's too bad but you know i think that it was kind of just the way that it was going and you know it wasn't long until we were into enterprise and it was all digital and i mean that didn't look really great now with all the new shows it's kind of like it's come to a point where they were hoping to get to eventually, which is that, you know, the ships look great and you don't need to spend the man hours or the materials to build it.
0: True, yeah, it's a little bit easier when you can just sort of program a computer.
1: Or if it's like Picard, you can just cut and paste the ships.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the opening scene we get this like scene on the bridge, and then there's a cup the scene with Garrick and Bashir and Sickbay, and then there's this another scene with uh in the mess hall. And I don't want to get into like too many specifics here because we could probably talk about this for a long time, but I just wanted the thing I wanted to point out is that we get some really great chemistry between the uh the cast here because we've got them, they're all disheveled. They've been, you know, running for like whatever I think they said like seventy eight hours or something. So three days straight, they're all like they're they're tired. They're 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 all disheveled. They're on edge, and I just thought that the like the the, the the dialogue here and the, con- and the the bantering was just so, so good. And just another example, I mean, we've talked about it before, just how great that those kinds of moments are with the Deep Space Nine cast.
1: Yeah, I think I would go a step further and kind of say that all the production people, the hair people, the makeup people, the costume people, tell a lot of the story through stuff that's as simple as like Jadzia's hair is all must. And Bashir has got his sleeves rolled up and... Uh, These are like the gray uh, First Contact costumes, and he's got his like zipped right down, like bare chest and stuff like that, which you never really see with those gray Starfleet uniforms. So just the fact that he's got the sleeves rolled up and everything, it just makes you feel like, man, these guys have been on the grind for a long time. And then you tie in kind of those... Uh, I don't want to say that they're caddy, but kind of these back and forth between Cisco and Nog and O'Brien and stuff. And it gives the sense that, like, the Starfleet regulations have kind of fallen to the fact that these guys have been at it for so long. Um, and it's kind of everybody working together on the production side to make you really feel like, yeah, these guys are... You Know they're really worn out, they're really disheveled, they're really bad, or they've been like in this war for longer than when we last saw them, uh, at the end of Call of Arms. So, yeah, really great job by everybody. And again, it's Deep Space Nine doing its Deep Space Nine thing,
0: yeah. I'm good, I'm glad you mentioned that actually, because I mean, I did notice, you know, especially Bashir with like the sleeves rolled up. Um, but yeah, you're you're spot on that, yeah, everything looked really good. I, I don't, I didn't really notice, but did they? I, it, did they look tired? Like, I don't know if their eyes were, like, beady or anything like that, but it wouldn't surprise me if somehow they were able to do that, because, I mean, they did everything else.
1: Yeah, let's just say that they didn't look like they were standing on the bridge of the Enterprise, with the bright white lights and the crisp ironed uh, uniforms. Like, this is a crew that's been, th- it's not like Year of Hell level <laughs> grunge, but, like, it's definitely, they've been definitely put through the rigor.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. When, when Martog's ships sort of rendezvous or whatever and him and Worf come on board, there's a, a cool little part that kind of go, calls back to um, uh, You're Cordially Invited, which we reviewed in, uh, I believe, episode four or 44th podcast. And there's the scene where Worf is like fussing over wedding details. I thought that was pretty funny because we, we talked about how he was almost like the the typical woman in our sort of current culture who is always, you know, getting worked up about all these wedding details and we, we, we see it here and I thought that was kind of a nice little
1: touch. Yeah, a nice little piece of continuity there and uh, one that I'd forgotten about. So yeah, I definitely noted that when when, we, when I saw it, but I, I like that they kept the characters true to form throughout the Deep Space Nine run.
0: And I also read that they sort of added that scene just to like give people, like they'd already, they'd planned that the wedding would be the set, the episode after this arc was finished and I think they've put that in there to kind of give people a sense of like, okay, yeah, when once everything's all over, there's going to be something else big that's going to happen. So um, that's that's why they threw that in there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing too is, is that nobody really wants to watch like a dystopian Star Trek. I think that uh, we've heard that loud and clear from everybody that gripes on the internet. So it's almost like they were throwing that in there like, yeah, this war stuff is going to be really bad. But then we're going to have a big wedding celebration episode. And it's like it takes a lot of the stress and a lot of the anguish and a lot of the darkness out of it. And, I mean, when we watch that episode, it's hard to kind of connect the two dots and think like, man, this is like right after that really bad time. It's like played for fun and there's like the bachelor party and it's like, I don't know, it's it's the comic relief amongst like a really tense section of the show.
0: Yeah, and speaking of tense moments, so the teaser ends, um, you know, with, they get this news that there's this big fleet that was, you know, in a big battle, and only, like, whatever, I think it was, what, 14 ships came back out of, like, 100 or something, they're all very disappointed to hear that, and they all leave the room, and Cisco's just sort of standing there, and he's, you, you can't really tell whether he's, like, fuming or not, and then all of a sudden, he just, like, smashes the table with his fist, and it, like, shatters but that's the only reaction you get like he doesn't he doesn't say anything or or that's just all he does and i really thought that that was a pretty it was intense but i thought it was also pretty restrained
1: yeah i mean i think that again like these these deep space 9 podcasts kind of end up turning into like a little bit of a gush fest sometimes with you and me but one of the things that they do with this whole 7th fleet is that there's all these little smatterings. O'Brien at one point mentions like, well, if anybody can stop the Dominion, it's the Seventh Fleet. And then Nog's like, we should have heard from the Seventh Fleet by now. And Jadzia mentions the Seventh Fleet. Like they're always talking about it. And they talk about it with such high regard. Like it's going to be the savior. It's going to be the thing that's going to be like the hard line. It's going to hold the Jem'Hadar at bay. And then when Martok comes in, and I think he says that, what is it like 15 of the ships survived out of like the whole huge fleet it was a very small number yeah and it's it's basically kind of that same thing right where you have built up like oh this is like the the best section this is the best ships this is the best people and then when you find out like oh they just got wiped out by the dominion it just hammers home that fact like man things are bad things are dire like that this was kind of like one of their last hopes and uh you know it got snuffed out like nothing right even though we see nothing of it we don't see any action we don't see any phaser shots we only hear dialogue and then kind of like that smashing of the table i don't know i i think it's kind of a fitting way to do it and there's not really any way else that i could see doing it that wouldn't end up being cheesy right like i think we've all been there we're just so mad you just want to like smash something because there's nothing else that you can do <laughs>
0: All right, we come back from the commercial, and we get this, uh, you know, series of scenes where we kind of get a look at the station, a look at the situation on Deep Space Nine with the the Cardassians and the Dominion uh, on uh, sort of taking over, and uh, we get a very rare log entry from one of the antagonists, and uh, it was Dukat's permanent documentation file. And uh, the only other time that that's ever really happened, and this is kind of debatable, is when they uh, got a log entry from Maximilian Forrest in the <laughs> uh, the, uh, the Enterprise Mirror Universe episode. And I mean, it, I mean, I guess it's kind of a matter of perspective of whether he's an antagonist or not, because you never really know in the Mirror Universe. And so, um, yeah, so that was kind of a rare little little piece right off the bat.
1: I think they kind of had to do it, to be honest, because... This is obviously a jump in time from when we last saw the station get taken over. So I think that they waste not wasted, they used up a lot of time doing the recap to the episode and then they did the, the whole bit with uh, all the people on the Defiance. So it's kind of like the writers were probably feeling like, how can we catch up everybody really quickly with regards to what's been happening on the station? Because it's been a few months and now they've basically taken it over and they have their own set of things that they're doing so i think it's a really interesting way to do it and you could also say that it's kind of like a wink to all the fans because the captain's log is such a a well-known star trek trope so to do like the cardassian permanent documentation record is just kind of fun to think that every species is taking such detailed logs all the time
0: well if there's one species that would that you would expect that from it is certainly the cardassians
1: no 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 doubt
0: now, there's the, the scene with Damar, Weyun and Dukat, and um, you, we get some of the, you know, typical bickering between them, which um, is always great because, you know, you have Mr. Po- Polite and Weyun who's, you know, politely telling them to, you know, screw off. And, you know, that's a complete contrast to Damar, who's very, uh, you know, not nearly as diplomatic. And, uh, I mean, these scenes are always... So much fun to watch because the acting's great, the characters are great.
1: Oh yeah, we've talked about it lots of times how Deep Space Nine has the deepest and the best collection of secondary non-main cast characters. And I mean these last two seasons, I mean you already rhymed off everybody who's in this one, but man, like they, they are just chewing the scenes together. The relationships are, are great. The interactions are great. And I think that the thing that I took away from all this bickering and and Wei Yun in general is that now that I've seen it and now that I know where it ends, I realize that like Wei Yun knows he holds all the cards. Like you know, when somebody's like the best at something, like everybody has the that that guy in high school who's like the best at all the sports. He's always got the best looking girl. He's got the coolest car. It's like you know, they never really need to get too worked up about anything because they already know that they've got it all in the bag. And when I was watching it back through here, it's like, man, Yun is just, like, not toying with them, but, like, he just kind of has that cockamamie smile, and he's just, like, kind of poking them and prodding them, and he just doesn't care, because he knows that, really, at the end of the day, he's just using them, and, you know, he's making them seem like they're in charge, but, really, the Dominion is the, you know, is the the steam engine. It is the driving force, and, the Cardassians, and the audience, they just don't know it yet.
0: Yeah, it's true, and yeah, wayun he definitely has got that very smug uh, aspect to his character. Now, there's another really great scene that I really thought was pretty pretty good and pretty funny, where uh, Quark is, like, in his bar, and there's all these Jem'Hadar sort of just lounging around, they're not doing anything, and he goes to each of them, and he's, like, trying to You know, sell them on the casino and the hollow suites and like, oh, maybe one of my ladies here, friends here can uh, show you how to play Dabo. And they just sort of like look at him. They don't say anything. I thought that was a great, it was a typical Quark moment. And I, I thought it was a really, really nice sort of light scene to have in this, you know, fairly serious situation.
1: Yeah, I do love that one of Quark's character beats is that they'll basically get into bed with whomever is, you know, the, the going rate right <laughs> at the time. And so I, I kind of feel like maybe Quark should have been like a little bit more disgruntled because I didn't get the sense that the Hadar guys were really spending any latinum. They were just kind of using it as a hangout. And so I kind of thought that maybe Quark wouldn't, Really want the Cardassians and the Gemhardar guys because the Federation maybe were like a little bit looser with the purse strings. They'd spend a little bit more latinum Plus, I feel like when the Federation was in charge, there was a lot more like inter-species people coming through the Promenade. Whereas with the Cardassians, it literally just seemed like there was the two species, and that was it. So I think that, and I think Quark Quark does say that he would rather the Federation, right?
0: Yeah, I think eventually uh, Odo and Kira come in and they, they talk. And, and I think eventually Quark, they're, they're sort of talking about the way things are going. And I think eventually Quark says, you know, as, as far as occupations go, you know, this isn't so bad.
1: Right, yeah. So, I mean, it, he, he's kind of looking at it from the business end of things. But he does at one point, he says, trust me, I, nobody wants the Federation back more than me. Or, I, I, you know, something to that effect. But, yeah, I, I do love that character beat. The other thing that I was kind of thinking about was that, like, I guess the, like, Ferenginar is not part of the Federation.
0: Not that I know of, no. So
1: it's just completely independent, and so that's kind of the reason they were able to do this nice splitting, really, of the of the cast. Because you've got all the Starfleet people around the Defiant, but then because they did that whole thing where Bajor did the peace agreement when Cisco uh, had that flash forward to what the future held, and so we get Jake, we get Odo, we get Quark, and we get Kira on the station. So they've literally split the main cast into the two spaces and i think that was such a brilliant idea because i think if we didn't have those guys on the station nobody would care
0: yeah you're pretty, you may be right about that while we're speaking of kira i, I want to revisit uh, the kira hair because i don't know if we talked about this when we did cordially invited but uh her hair is a little bit different in season six as is sort of customary uh where does where does season six kira hair rank for you
1: the Kira hair in this one's like a little on the short side, I would say, like kind of the, to the point where, I don't know, I, this is not my favorite uh, Kira hair. I think that, uh, yeah, it's a little too short. And I also remember specifically that by the time you get to season seven, that's kind of the best version of Kira, like as a character, but as well as the hair. Um, this one is kind of a little season one y to me.
0: Uh, Yeah, much the same. I, I was It was a little too short for my liking. And yeah, you're right, it's kind of season one-esque. Um, so I would say it ranks pretty low. Pretty low indeed, yeah. <laughs> okay, now we get our first appearance of Admiral Ross. And I was kind of surprised that it was all the way in season six. I felt like maybe he turned up sooner, but this is actually the first time we see him. A little bit of a strange thing here is that he's wearing a next-generation style uniform, but then later on he sort of has a newer... Updated one,
1: the big belt buckle.
0: <laughs> yeah, the belt buckle. Yeah, I thought that was kind of odd.
1: I remember that Admiral Ross is in a lot of episodes, but yeah, it is kind of like very back weighted. I think that uh, Admiral Ross is great because they 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 did the thing that nobody would expect in terms of like actually having a good admiral who has everybody's best <laughs> interest in mind, which is so nice to see. I think that, uh, yeah, the TNG-style uniform is weird. It's almost kind of like what they did with... um, Remember in Star Trek Generations where, like, some people had the Deep Space Nine costumes and some people have the Next Generation. Like, they were, like, amidst changing. Um, I also kind of like the headcanon that, you know, Admiral Ross is under such, like, crazy stress from the war that, like, he hasn't bothered to, like, replicate fresh uniforms or something i don't know it's a bit cheesy but like um it was weird to see him interact with all the gray uniform guys just because yeah it just seemed like it was out of place but who knows maybe that's like a fleet admiral's uniform and that he just came from a fleet i don't know
0: yeah i don't know if there's really a good explanation other than maybe they just didn't have time to like get him fitted or something who knows there's probably some practical reason for it it
1: is funny though how like if it was a bad episode we would nitpick that and be so mad about it <laughs> but when it's a good episode we can come up with like a million reasons to why it doesn't fit uh canonically.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now of course uh you know we see him because he uh he gives Cisco a uh, a mission which is um you know pretty risky but it was well thought out I suppose and um it it's kinda of nice that after we see them so down and, you know, the morale is so low and things are going so poorly, we, we get a chance to see them kinda of go on a a risky mission that sort of gets them on the offensive and, and doing something rather than running away. So I thought that uh I, I thought the mission itself was uh was kind of a cool idea. Because, you know, the the Gemhadar the are like totally dependent on that that drug, you know, and I guess they somehow figured out where it's being stored, and they figured, okay, well, if we get rid of the drug, the the Jem'Hadar are going to be going berserk.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's multi-layered here because there's also that whole side storyline about the uh, wormhole being mined. So not only can they not get new Jem'Hadar soldiers into the Alpha Quadrant, but they also can't get any more Ketracel White. So this is, I think, the biggest facility or the the, the most important facility that they have in the Alpha Quadrant. The one thing that I would say about this whole mission thing is that they kind of blew an opportunity to kind of make it a little bit more sensical in terms of, like, why would you send Cisco and Dax and Bashir and O'Brien and all these guys on this super specific mission? I even think that, like, they could have just said, oh, you know what? These Jemhadar Google blast headsets can only be used by Cardassians, so we're gonna have to send Garrick and then Garrick like insist that all the Deep Space Nine guys go because it seems like it's almost too risky of a mission to send all these really important characters.
0: They're like the best right
1: yeah, so it's maybe like they. It's such an important mission. You got to send the best guys. I like that.
0: Okay, then there's um there's a scene uh, where Cisco's like talking to Dax, I think it is, and she's like, "You still haven't told your dad, have you?" And uh, he's like, "No, I haven't." And he's all nervous about uh, telling his father that Jake got left behind after the uh, the the Cardassians and Dominion attack, Deep Space Nine and sort of took it over. I, it's kind of a funny thing how Cisco's kind of like, "Oh, I really don't want to do this," but he ends up you know, I mean he's gotta tell him at some point. And I, I guess sort of my takeaway from this eventually, uh, initially is that, you know, Joseph Sisko is his father, had like a very genuine sort of grandfatherly reaction, which I thought was really was really great.
1: Yeah, no, that's again it's another great side character, right? Um the Joseph Sisko he doesn't he I think he shows up in like what, three or four episodes, but every time he does show up, he he definitely He feels like he could have been Ben Sisko's father, like really honestly and truthfully. The only thing about that whole kind of side plot with Jake staying on the station, I like this stuff with the grandfather. I like that Jake is doing the writing thing. He's not following the Starfleet path and he's going to do his own thing. I like that they, again, found a way of keeping some on the station and some on the ship. But that being said, like, if this is a true war, And Sisko is like one of the most important captains in Starfleet. Don't you think that the Dominion is ruthless enough that they would use the fact they have his son as like something to hold over them? You know what I mean? Like they're like pretty cavalier about not really messing with Jake, even though they could really easily, you know, grab him, torture him, like use him to hurt the Federation, I feel.
0: Well, I think in Call to Arms, like when when Jake actually got left behind, he act someone was like, "What are? Why did you stay behind? Are you crazy?" And he said, "Well, I'm the son of the emissary, and the Dominion knows that. So if they mess with me, like they're gonna disillusion all the Bajorans, like you know, their new allies. And so I think that's maybe why they sort of gate left him alone. Because you're right. I mean, if he was just like some Starfleet captain's son, I'm sure they would have completely. Taken advantage of that. But I think it's because they knew that Cisco was sort of a revered religious icon to the Bajoran people that, that they kind of left Jake alone.
1: Uh, Yeah, man, every time I throw up a question, you just seem to be slam dunking these back on me. That's (laughs) a very excellent uh, response to that. And not something that I thought about. Um, I actually love that too, because it's, It's pretty thin, you know what I mean? Like, they're not messing with him, but, like, he's definitely risking a lot, right? Just because, like, the whole thing feels a lot more precarious now that I think about all of these things kind of hanging in the balance. So, yeah, really excellent point, actually, that they're not going to mess with the emissary because then Beja is going to go out. And then if Beijer goes out, it's gonna kinda of th- make everybody kind of feel like the Dominion is untrustworthy. And then all those independent places like Ferenginar and all the ones that aren't part of the Federation are gonna join up the fight on their end. Yeah, wow. You know what? That's a excellent explanation, Matt.
0: I do what I do what I can, yeah. Yeah, I know I thought that whole conversation was pretty pretty funny and pretty good because, you know, Joseph Sisko's like you know what do you mean it's not as bad as you say it is you didn't really leave my grandson in the you know enemy territory and J and Jay, and, Sisko, and ben's like well actually yeah that is kind of what happened but <laughs> you know it does kind of you, you do kind of see the, the the father and son kind of eventually they sort of come to an understanding and they have their little their little moment at the end where you know they're sort of like you know take care of yourself and all that kind of stuff and i i, I really like that dynamic between Joseph and Benjamin Cisco, I thought that that the sort of the ending of that scene was you know because they were kind of bickering back and forth, but eventually they sort of make up
1: you know I would even go a step further and you also get to see that like Jake's has some of that same kind of like characters between like grandfather, the father, and the son because I feel like the interactions between Jake and Yun like a little bit later you can see some of those same kind of beats that you get in the interaction between the father and father and son, grandfather and, and father. And then you see again, the son, and you're seeing him doing these, uh, he's writing up like news, news reports or whatever. And he's kind of like a little bit cheeky about the stuff that he's writing about. And it's like, Oh, this like runs in the family, right? Like everybody in this family has like a little bit of sass to them. It has a little bit of cheek and uh, yeah, a nice little touch. I think. Hello Star Trek fans, this is Andrew and you are listening to Random Trek Review. If you want more good Star Trek goodness, then you should check out the RTR blog at randomtrekreview.blogspot.com. You can also... Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for Random Trek Review. We're also on social media, uh, Twitter at Trek Review or Instagram at Random Trek Review. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you could always just email us at randomtrekreview at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to talking some Trek.
0: All right, this is a nice segue to uh, a scene that involves Jake uh, and Wayoon, and uh, they have a little uh, debate about uh, the press because, as you mentioned, uh, Jake was writing uh, news reports for the Federation News Service. And um, I thought this was a pretty interesting scene just for the debate of the role of the press just in general. And then also because, you know, Wei again, is, uh, you know, Mr. Polite. Uh, but he, you know, very politely uh, expressed the, that his Pure disdain for the uh, reports that that Jake was writing.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, again, Deep Space Nine is <laughs> ahead of its time, right? Like, when you think about fake news and Fox Media and all these things that uh, everybody talks about today, it's just subtly snuck in there right now where, you know, Yun is stopping the access to information. And because of that, there's a big uh, misunderstanding, or at least we are led to believe so, uh, across the Alpha Quadrant as to the the true... Nature of the Dominion. It's something that's not delved into deeply, but I don't think it's very hard for us to kind of use a bit of common sense to think about the fact that, you know, space is so big and the Dominion is really kind of coming out of one little small area and, you know, there's this war going on. And we get the sense here that, you know, there's a lot of misinformation or a lot of no information that, it, it, that it is being heard, right? Like, we don't get a lot, but we get enough that I think that we can piece it together. Is that how you took it?
0: Yeah, it was pretty, it was an interesting scene because, you know, they, Wayoon was, I don't want to say he was trying to tell Jake that he should be painting the Dominion in a positive light so much, but I think he he was trying to look for a, you know, he was trying to get a more balanced Report from him, and he was kind of like nitpicking things from the reports to sort of support his point, which was kind of, you know, backhanded. But, um, yeah, it was a pretty interesting scene just for the debate in general on, like, you know, what is the, you know, what's the role of the press?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, even just to kind of take a small step back, when you heard Joseph Sisko talk about the war, did you get a sense that he was, like, either misinformed or, like, maybe slightly uninformed?
0: Well, yeah. there. I think he, um, he even said at one point when they were talking about that, he said to Benjamin, like, you know, is it really as bad as they say? And and Cisco was sort of like, sort of like looked down and then he was like, it might be worse, which sort of suggests that like maybe they were kind of being, you know, the Federation wasn't maybe being totally honest in their reporting.
1: Right. And it's kind of like a lot of things even in our news cycle where like you read about something and it seems like the worst thing ever. And you're like, well, is that just the media kind of like pumping it up for clicks and views and everything else? You know, how bad really is it? And I mean, it's even more so in this era because it's not really like you can go and find the information yourself. The stuff that's happening is literally light years away. And so it's kind of hard for people who are on Earth, like Joseph Sisko, to really get a sense of the scale, the scope, everything. It, it seems like they're kind of in the dark in a way. And that's where Jake comes in and Jake's going to, you know, he's going to write this newsletter from the front lines and then it gets stopped. And so I think there's a nice little tie there to, you know, is it World War One, World War Two? They sent a lot of press people, but, you know, a lot of times stuff got stopped or never made it back or there was kind of misinformation and the the supply line for press is is very difficult and very different during war times than during regular times i guess
0: yeah i would imagine that that's probably true there i wrote down that jake sort of shows some a lot of persistence here and that kind of ties into what you were saying just a moment ago about how all those like cisco characters the the you know, the grandfather, Benjamin and Jake, they all sort of have that, uh, I think you use the word sass to them. And we, we get to see a little bit of that here from Jake. Cause you, I felt found that he was like being very persistent. Like he wasn't, he wasn't just going to lay down and let Wei Yun tell him what to do with regards to his reporting, which I thought was kind of nice.
1: All the Cisco men have a never say die attitude kind of thing, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So yeah, I definitely think that, uh, one of the other things, like, I think it came up in trivia for the end of the year thing, that Jake is in less episodes than Morn. And you know what, by the time you get to season six, season seven, maybe they were thinking maybe we should do something more with this character. And this might be the start of some growth for Jake, which is definitely needed.
0: Yeah, and I think we do get that in the last couple of seasons from him. All right, moving along. So we, we go sort of back to that uh, Starbase or whatever it was that... That's the little station Ross sort of gives some of the details of the mission and we find out that they're going to they're going to take this mission on in their a captured Jem'Hadar ship which they uh, they got in a uh, previous episode called the ship which is actually one of my favorite episodes it was uh, it was a really great episode and I kind of like that callback to it which was kind of neat. The, the, the we get some more of this really great banter and it's kind of reminds me of I uh, remember in the scientific method where there was that scene where Chakotay and Neelix were like sitting in sickbay and they're like comparing their ailments like the classic you know sort of two elderly folks on the park bench and we kind of got a something kind of reminiscent of that in that opening scene on the bridge of the the Jem'Hadar ship where they're like oh, there's no replicators, we're going to have to eat rations, and oh, there's no windows, how are we going to know what's going on, and and so on, and I I thought that was another great example of sort of the great chemistry between the the Deep Space Nine cast.
1: Yeah, again, you know, with these Deep Space Nine episodes, we are always, you know, in danger of just, you know, gushing and blushing over the whole thing. It's, again, like, even the, the episodes of Deep Space Nine are so good that there are references and callbacks to other amazing episodes of Deep Space Nine uh, scattered throughout it. So ah, it just makes you want to sit down and watch the whole series over again, doesn't
0: it? Oh, we should be so lucky. I mean, if only, it, you know, it wouldn't take you months at a time. I'd certainly watch it more than uh, than I do but yeah, no, it's a, it was a great scene and I kind of liked that uh, they had that. It was kind of interesting getting a look at how the inside of a Jem'Hadar ship works too.
1: I think that one of the things about the Jem'Hadar ship is that uh, we have always only seen them, not, not at afar, we've seen them a lot, but I think that they do a good job of making everything feel very alien and very utilitarian. So when they get in there... And there's no rations, there's no anything. It it definitely makes you also get the sense that the Dominion are just using these guys like literal bugs. Like the ships look like bugs and they're just meant to be squashed by other people. And, you know, it's no loss to them because they've got millions of them. And I think that there is some like subtle or some, some, some subtext there that we're supposed to pick up on, right? We're supposed to kind of be like, oh yeah, these Dominion guys are heartless. They will literally sacrifice these guys. They don't food feed them. They got them addicted to drugs. Like they are the worst on every measurable level.
0: Yeah, there is a bit of that uh, when you're when they're sort of going running down. We you know all the things that are wrong with the ship. Uh, definitely. Um, so we go back to the station, and there is a scene where the Ducat creepiness level like just goes completely off the chart. There's that scene in the office with Kira, and that was almost uncomfortable to watch because you know Ducat is just like in this in this sort of like weird pursuit of Major Kira he just he gets so creepy and so like it's just it's uncomfortable to watch and I mean it's a credit to the acting because Mark Lemo does a pretty good job acting this you know sort of obsessed guy who's got a thing for the major and um I i I just found it very creepy and almost uncomfortable to watch. Uh, Were were you kind of in the same boat there?
1: Um, I'm going to kind of double up your two points because the next point that you wanted to talk about was Ducat's hair and the fact that it's not like slicked back. It's a bit more disheveled. (laughs) I think that it's all connected. And I mean, you're going to have to kind of bear with me here for a second, but I think that this is kind of the beginnings of us witnessing the unraveling, and eventual, not demise, but the downfall of Gul Dukat. I think that there was kind of a purposeful or an intentional push to kind of show that Dukat is coming unglued. Remember, he kind of made this last desperate plea to join the Dominion, and it was going to be his rise to power. And I think that we're kind of seeing that it's not going the way that he thought it was going to go and he's coming unglued and so he's kind of grasping at all these things he's always had this weird kira relationship we later find out again spoiler alert if you haven't watched it yet stop listening for a second but um we we later find out that like he has a relationship with the mom remember he was like kira's mom he had like an obsession with he then eventually hooks up with like uh kai win and like he's just so desperate to kind of grab onto these like strong women or these powerful women and i think that it's all kind of connected he he's coming unglued and because he's coming unglued it's like creating this ultra creepy super aggressive like i don't want to say monster but like it's just creating this character that is just so desperate that's what i kind of felt like it didn't seem as creepy as it seemed like just desperate over the top and like cringe level maximum what are your thoughts on that theory?
0: It does kind of make sense that this is sort of the beginning of the fall of Galdukar and maybe that's why he's become so cuz the his thing with Kira it was always kind of like subtle and it wasn't really overt, but this is like right in your face there's no question of like what his intentions are. And I think maybe you're right because a further spoiler alert, but by the end of this six episode arc, I mean, he's captured, he's broken. His daughter has been, was like murdered right in front of him. And yeah, I think you're probably right that maybe that this was kind of a purposeful uh, scene that they wanted to make it seem like he's really kind of, I think there's also maybe a bit of, you know, delusions of grandeur as well. Like he's starting to think that he's, he, you know his head's getting too big for his his own good so yeah i i think you're i think that's a reasonable uh explanation for this whole weird scene <laughs> yeah
1: and, and like you mentioned the acting is just top tier for everybody here
0: yeah exactly nana visitor is also very good as well all right we go back to the uh the crew the the starfleet crew and they're on their their gemhadar attack ship and they have a uh a brief battle with the USS Centaur. Now, um, we don't really see the Centaur that much. Now, there's a reason I'm going to ask you this, um, but do you kind of like the look of it? I mean, we didn't get to see it much, but what, do you, what did, did you look at that ship and be like, oh, that's a really cool-looking ship, or were you just sort of like, eh?
1: No, it, it kind of had the, like, Rathacon-level vibe ship, like with the 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 saucer with kind of the smaller nacelles like to the side like it, i got the sense that it was wasn't a big ship i think that 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 whole bit the whole scene with the centaur is, is is a good one and it's such a cheesy tv trope where you just get over and you're under disguise and then like your guys come but you can't tell them like i love all that stuff um but no it wasn't a ship that really stood out well the reason i ask is because as you know i'm sort of into the model building
0: hobby and over the years, there's so many, I've seen so many like blogs and, and internet pages of model builders, like Star Trek model builders, who have tried to recreate this ship. It's like this weird holy grail of like Star Trek model building that if you can put together an accurate model of the USS Centaur, and I have no idea why that is. It seems like a very nondescript ship.
1: And it's, it's like a two second blink and you miss it kind of thing, but... You know what? That's that's what holy grails are really is they are ships that or uh, you know things that are very, you know, unique, very small and very hard to find, so maybe that's the reason.
0: Yeah, it could be. Now, the one thing that kind of stood out to me here is that I mean, Starfleet must have hundreds and hundreds of ships, which means there are hundreds and hundreds of captains. And Cisco just happens to know charlie reynolds the captain of the <laughs> yeah. uss centaur he just happens to know him he's like a, you know they're buddies and cisco knows all of his tendencies and what he likes to do and how he responds to you know in, when he's in a battle and i you know I, I i don't know if i like it when they do that because it seems to happen more than it should
1: yes that's true but do you remember star trek 2009 that we just watched uh two weeks ago <laughs> When you get contrivances like old Spock living in a cave and Montgomery Scott working in, a, in a, the, ice, the same ice planet and everything, these ones don't seem so bad. I, I, will, tell, I will agree 100%. It's very con- convenient. It is very, you know, happenstance that it happens to be a guy that he knows. And you know what? For the most part, they probably could have avoided it. They could have easily just said, well, you know what? It's Starfleet protocol to do blank because cisco would know the protocols right and base it off of that but i think that they are i don't know they're trying to do something where it makes cisco seem like he's got lots of friends and he knows everybody but um they did the same thing with ransom didn't they like when ransom showed up like janeway knew him from like college days and i mean they they've done this a lot and i again man when it's such a good episode i care a lot less
0: yeah, well, I, I mean, I think it also kind of gives, a, because Cisco has a familiarity, it kind of adds a little bit more of, uh, more tension to the situation, because it's like, oh, this is like my, my, I know Charlie, like, I don't want to blow up his ship and, and kill his crew, you know, he's my pal, so I, I think maybe that's the reason why they would do something like that, just to maybe, maybe raise the stakes just a little bit.
1: Right, I think the other thing that they did, which is like a little bit on the cheesy side, but again, it gets them out of a box that they put themselves in is remember those, those gem Hadar ships that like go chasing them and they're like, Oh man, like I hope they don't get blown up. And then Cisco's like, Oh, don't worry. Like uh, Reynolds has gotten himself out of stickier situations (laughs) than that. So it's like, we're left to believe that he'll be fine. Whereas if it was like just Starfleet protocols, it would be kind of like everybody look at each other. Like, Oh yeah, they're definitely going to get blown up. (laughs) (laughs) So that part of it is probably the reason why they did that angle instead of the angle that I suggested.
0: OK, just um, we're sort of getting towards the end, but there's one little scene that that I, I really took a note of. And I think we kind of we, you already kind of talked about the Jem'Hadar and how they're cannon fodder. And, and you use the term bugs because their ships kind of look like bugs. And we get a scene where a couple of them come into the room and yun has got like the case of Ketrasell White and they go through that whole little ritual I found this scene to be a little bit unsettling, but I feel like it's kind of a good thing that we get. And this is like just classic deep space nine sort of digging into those like dark corners where next generation would never go and and the thing that I found unsettling about it is that the two the two Jem'Hadar guys, they were like they weren't really like shaking at the beginning, but you could tell that they were like really, you know, they were really eager to get their Ketracel white. And then when Yun hands them like the canisters and they put them in the little, uh, whatever thing inside their like vest and it starts like feeding through the tube, they sort of like, there was like that thing where they like breathed in really deep and they sort of like looked like they were, you know, like essentially how you would expect like a drug addict to, to react after they get their drugs. And I, it was kind of unsettling, but I, I thought it was actually a good scene.
1: Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with 99% of, of what you said. Um, the only thing I would say, you, you mentioned that deep, or Next Generation wouldn't do something like this. And I, I, I somewhat disagree because there is a great episode of The Next Generation where there's a moon and then there's a planet. And the people that live on the planet are supplying a drug to the people on the moon. And they're addicted to it. And then basically the Enterprise has to do the Prime Directive thing and just like walk away. The thing that Deep Space Nine does is it takes it to like the nth degree. And like you said, the guy's got the shakes and he's like breathing it in like it's like fresh cocaine or or heroin or something. And this is, I think, the first time anyway where they they flat out say, oh, yeah, like if these guys don't get the ketracel weight, they'll just die. And so that part of it takes it to another level of like drug abuse that the other series wouldn't do especially since you know with any of the drug stuff we've seen in star trek to so far it's always been you know they'd have withdrawal symptoms there would be kind of a a period of really uncomfortableness but this is a this is different like when they blow up this facility then the, the thing here is is like these ketrocell white guys are going to go through a horrible period of pain as they go through withdrawal and then they're going to die because of their symptoms. And yeah, it, I thought that it was a weird thing to show in, the, in this particular episode because this is not really an episode that's about the interactions between the Dominion and the uh, Jem'Hadar guys. But then I realized like this is what makes it feel really real to us. That this mission is so important because they're going to lose so many soldiers when this uh, when this uh, facility gets blown up. So this is this is really good. I mean, unsettling is a great word that you used. And I think that it definitely amps it up for me anyway. I feel like it, it makes the episode better.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's an accident that they put this scene in right before it sort of goes back to the mission. And yeah you are right that next generation did sort of go into drug abuse um I kind of I guess what I meant to say was yeah they wouldn't go to this level
1: this level yeah exactly
0: but yeah I th- it was it was kind of an unsettling scene but I think it was a really good scene and I, I because it sort of get, hits home you know just how addicted these these gem hadar are to this drug and it also kind of you know, it kind of amps up the, the importance of the mission a little bit because we kind of see that, like, oh, yeah, these guys are they're fully addicted, and if that facility blows up, like, bad stuff is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the,
1: the least believable thing is that Weyoun is personally giving out the Ketra Cell Light. <laughs> um, they probably have, like, uh, you know, underlings for that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's weird that we've spent so much of this, and we haven't even really talked about the big action piece right um this is the uh the asteroid that has the catcher site well white white facility um and i thought there was kind of an interesting thing with this because when the episode starts there's like all those ships that um are are kind of cruising along through space and it had a very um like empire strikes back feel um you remember at the end of that movie all the ships were homeless and, and 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 Flying around, and then they revisit that in Return of the Jedi, and there's that scene where they have to get onto the forest moon using the access codes. And I really had a strong feeling like this was exactly like this um, because they were tr- they had. Remember they had to go in, use the access codes, switch over the stuff with the bomb, and then try to escape. And then there's like that moment where they they don't open it. Yeah, everything here is great.
0: Well, yeah, like you're right. I didn't even think of that really sort of the parallel between that sort of towards the beginning of Return of the Jedi when they're they're going down to Endor and you know they give them the code and they're like they're like waiting and they're like oh no is it gonna work like did they are we are we are we screwed you know and and then eventually it it works I'm not really surprised that they hit a snag here there's always something right like these missions they never go exactly the way you plan it was a nice little bit of sort of suspense for that one moment where garrick's like oh no i don't know if they're gonna they, they've they you know i don't know if they're gonna actually deactivate the shield or whatever the one thing that was kind of odd to me was that the bomb went off early that was a little bit odd because i feel like did o'brien like not set the timer right or did someone else not set the timer right like that was a little bit weird
1: i i, I kind of got the sense that maybe the jem hadar guys started fiddling with it and they just Like, set it off by accident. Like, they have found it. That's why they weren't opening up the shields. And then they were, like, trying to deactivate it, and they accidentally, like, blew it early or something. That was kind of my mind spot. Yeah, there's this whole weird thing, because this is, like, after Julian Bashir is outed as being, like, a you know, a genius through nefarious ways. And so he keeps like calculating all these numbers and, you know, they're, they're <laughs> checking him with the computer and stuff like that. But yeah, so the bomb goes early, even though they had it calculated all perfectly and it gives the ship a, a beating, but it's still in one piece, but there is no warp. And again, they go back to Bashir and Bashir says, "What is it like? Sixteen months?" Which I feel like is actually probably not accurate. I think
0: it was like seventeen years.
1: Okay, years, I would say is probably more likely. But at Impulse Drive, I even think that it would be longer than that. But whatever, doesn't matter. It's, it's a it's a great scene that you know this is basically a life raft, right? That is really far from shore and yeah that's where it ends again it's it's the second cliffhanger of in a row basically
0: yeah it's exactly what you said you fall off one cliff you land on a ledge and then there's another cliff and yeah i i really liked that there was not a lot of reaction after o'brien was like yeah the warp drive is fried like we're screwed they basically just say oh how long is it going to take to get back and like that's it they just cut to credits and i thought that i thought it was good that they didn't give a lot of time for reaction because then it's sort of like oh no what's next and it's it's really a great way to sort of entice you and to continue to watch the next episode
1: it worked on me man because as soon as I watched this I waited the five <laughs> seconds on my streaming service and I watched the next one so
0: yeah unfortunately during the original run I only would have had to wait a week instead of you know two months so um but I'm I'm sure I tuned in the following week uh very little doubt of that and that pretty much wraps up the uh, the episode so um you know we like to go through back and sort of point out a favorite scene or a favorite line. So uh, you got a, you got one or, or both for us?
1: It's a weird one, though, um, especially since there's so much good stuff here. It, it, it seems almost uh, like this is too small of, of, a, of a quote, uh, too small of a scene to use, but I actually thought that it was a really great and astute look at the war from an outsider's perspective. And that was basically when Joe Sisko was talking to Ben Sisko, and he brings up the great point that like uh Ben is always talking about you know, the final frontier, it's endless space that goes on in endless directions, in every every direction. He basically asks, like, how could there not be enough space for everybody? Considering that there is endless amounts of it. I don't think that Benjamin Sisko even really has a response. He he just says like I don't, I don't know, like, but I didn't write down the exact wording. It doesn't really matter. That is a great quote and a great little piece of a window that allows us to kind of see it from other people's perspective. Excellent little piece. And it's a small part, but I love that scene. What about you?
0: Yeah, that's a good one. Um, From a humor point of view level, I, I love the scene where Quark is like trying to sell all his, you know, stuff on the Hadar and they have zero interest in it whatsoever. I thought that was a great scene. As far as like a quote... I'm going to go back sort of towards the beginning where Garrick and Bashir are sort of going back and forth. You know, Garrick asks him, you know, in your genetically engineered brain, like, how much, uh, how have you calculated our chance of surviving this? And Bashir sort of tells him. And then Garrick, you know, sort of jabs at him for being genetically enhanced. And Bashir's like, are you insulting me? And, and Garrick says, uh, a 37 point, a 32.7 chance of survival is insulting. And I thought that was a pretty clever uh, funny line from um Mr. Garrick who I'm I'm sure our listeners know by now is uh my favorite favorite character. So um yeah, I got to go with the Garrick line as as you know.
1: Yeah, that that is a great scene especially since uh you know Bashir's talk about his boyish charm and then Garrick kind of hits back, that he's not so boyish anymore, another good one as well.
0: Yeah, I've used the boyish smile line uh in my everyday life before. <laughs> okay, um let's uh sum it up and uh Give me a rating out of five stolen Jem'Hadar vessels. Uh, What do you think of a time to stand?
1: Uh, At at the risk of sounding like an absolute Deep Space Nine mark, I have to give this five out of five. Jem'Hadar bug vessels. It just scratches you everywhere that you itch. It has a little bit of action. It has great dialogue, great callbacks. It has great character beats. It has interesting things to discuss and talk about. It's got the cliffhanger it just has everything and it's really going to start to seem anyway that like you know this is the only Star Trek series that I like but it's just so good like every one that we've seemed to pick of late it's just like it hits all the spots that I want to hit and it's just so hard to to really find anything bad and anytime that you have kind of see a little crack I just run over and I patch it up because I'm like, no, 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 it's perfect. It's, it's great the way that it is like, leave it be. Um, so yeah, five out of five, man. It's an excellent episode.
0: Okay. Um, I'm going to be a little bit more stingy. Um, I mean, this is a really uh, good episode. It was the beginning of a really good, uh, story arc that we get. Um, and I thought it set up the, those, the elements of that story arc really well. Um, I mean, there were a few kind of nitpicky things in this, but generally speaking, like you say, there's some really great dialogue, there's some really great scenes. Um, We even get a nice little, uh, you know, quark moment to kind of lighten the mood uh, as we go through this episode, which, you know, had some pretty serious uh, content in it really good i really enjoyed watching it i am going to give it uh four stolen gem vessels out of five it's um it's really on the cusp i mean if i could give maybe 0. 0.5 this would probably be a 4.5 but i i think it's not quite uh at that level for me where i would give it a five but um very very good episode All right, Andrew, I hear the red alert siren, which means it is time to reach into the... Gem had our headset of episodes, and we'll uh, grab a new one for uh, our next podcast. Um, how are you feeling about your uh, your chances here?
1: I am feeling like I want to start strong with the Season 3, but that being said, I feel like last year with the whole tortoise versus the hare there's nothing wrong with starting slow either so i am very happy to come as come as it will you know whatever i get i get and um to be honest with you i wouldn't mind seeing like some enterprise or some voyager or some animated series because i feel like they were a little bit misrepresented last season
0: All right, then. Well, unfortunately, that's not going to be the case here. We are going to be back to the next generation, and this episode is from Season 2. It is episode number 19, and it is called Manhunt.
1: Manhunt.
0: And while Andrew gathers his thoughts here and see what he can remember from Manhunt... Just a reminder that uh, the blog is available on our uh, off weeks when we're not releasing our, uh, our regular podcast. So check that out. See what you can remember from Manhunt. If you think you can do better than Andrew, drop us a line and, and we'll tell you how you did. Andrew is writing furiously. Let's get uh, Andrew looks like he's ready here. So let's get uh, 60 seconds on the clock. And your time begins now.
1: All right, I'm going to use your reaction and say that this is kind of a lighthearted episode with kind of like lots of jokes and kind of eye-rolling moments. I think there's going to be like a spe- like a different species or like an ambassador that comes to the ship and basically is helping the Enterprise look for um, like a, a missing person who's breaking the law for some reason. I think that um, there's going to be... Uh, it's going to be like a cheesy law or like something that's not really that serious. It's going to be something that, um, you know, like the audience isn't going to really feel like this is a real reason to look for it. Um, I think that there's going to maybe be, I don't know, there, there, there's going to be some element to it that is going to really make the whole thing kind of unraveled un like not super serious. Maybe like, I don't know, like, like Luxana or somebody's going to friggin' show up and it's going to be, like, not taken for real.
0: And your time <laughs> is up.
1: I think that, uh oh, man, I have no recollection. The thing that was pouring through my head, remember the one with with Han Solo, like Star Trek edition? But that one was called, like, The Last Okonga or something. And so I had to change my mind and I, I literally was basing more of it on your you're like, oh, we'll have some fun with that. So I'm like, ah, oh, it's got to be like a jokey episode where they're searching for somebody. Um, I don't remember this, man. Uh, help me out. What's Manhunt about?
0: Okay, I have good news. And that is that I all I know about this episode is that it involves locks on a truck. <laughs> oh, really? So, um, you'll, you'll get at least one point for that. But I have no idea what the rest of it is about. So we'll, uh,
1: we'll have to watch it and find out. Okay, indeed. And uh, yeah, that will be in two weeks time.
0: All right, thanks a lot for joining us here on Random Trek Review, and uh, we hope you'll join us next time as we take a look at Manhunt.
1: Bye, everybody.